Good morning, Grace. My name is Jason Oaks. My wife and I have been members here for about 10 years now. We and our four kids are normal third service dwellers right over here. Um, every now and then we'll slip down to your service. Uh, there's sometimes not a lot of cross-pollinating between services when there's multiple services. It's just the realities of having a large enough church that we have that many. It's a blessing to be here. One way to cut the entire population of the world is by how much trouble you got into when you were in kindergarten and first grade. So uh, the way I see it, at least, is there's really two different classes of people. There's the class pets, the people who did everything right, and they showed up to those first instrumental years of school. They knew how to act. They knew how to treat others. They got along well. And on your report cards, when you went home, it said something like, plays well with others. Notice I've used the pronoun you on that category. Because I was in the other category, we were the persistent corner dwellers, the people who were constantly in trouble that needed to be sort of removed from the general population often for the safety of ourselves and others. Uh, probably, I, probably until seventh grade on my report card, it always said the same thing, among other things, but it always said, talks too much talks too much. Only a few years ago, adults were begging me as a baby to talk, and now everyone wants me to shut up all of a sudden. During class, I, class time for me was a time to try out new stand-up comedy material, right? There was no reason for me to have talking. Talking too much was what I was there for. I wasn't there to listen and learn. I was there to talk. In first grade, so I grew up in a barbaric part of the universe in Oklahoma, um, where and many of you who are my age recognize and remember those big wooden paddles that you used to get hit with. And in first grade, Mrs. Fraser spanked me at least five to ten times. I can't remember, like separate occasions. In preschool, um, I was placed in the corner, and I don't mean sort of just kind of in, in the corner a little bit. The way that the corner was set up in my preschool, and I have vivid memories of this, is that there was a door. I'm not talking about Mrs. Collins' little pot of gold. Whenever you search on Google Images for classroom doors, all you find are teachers who are very proud of their doors that they've decorated. So I just had to search through that. But the point of the picture is, you see that little nook behind the door, there's, there'd be a little triangle that you could be put into. And in my preschool, I would literally be put in the corner and then the teacher would shut the door on me and wedge something in there to hold me in there, which shows I must have been quite a nuisance. If you opened that door, you'd see an ornery little Jason Oaks sitting in there grinning and being ready to be turned loose back on the classmates. It's almost like some sort of POW camp where you're in a, you know, put in the cave or the cooler. Steve McQueen was called the cooler king in The Great Escape because he got put in there so much, and that was probably my role in my preschool, spending too much time behind the door in the corner. So why am I talking about this? Well, obviously for my own therapy is one part. It's good to, uh, to name and not blame our hurts from the past. Uh, but really, this passage starts right off with these two women who we think of as sort of shamed and placed in the corner. And I think that if, if we move too quickly, and this was my tendency a couple weeks ago when I first started looking at the passage, was to sort of treat this first few verses as sort of like, oh, okay, Paul was writing this, this really great letter, and then he sort of had to deal with these two problem women, right? He had to sort of deal with whatever they're doing because you see here it says that uh, they need to get along, right? They need to agree in the Lord. 
So it's almost like he's like, okay, I'm writing this beautiful letter. I need to set these two women in the corner. And then I come back to you guys, to the class favorites, to finish the letter. But the more time that I've spent, I've realized that that is, gives us an improper way to understand what's actually going on in the letter. So let me pray. Let the Spirit help us. And we're going to actually tackle this in three chunks. I'm going to read a chunk. We're going to talk about it. Then we'll read the second chunk, talk about it, and read the third chunk. Let's ask for help. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we come to your word with humility, uh, but we can also come before your throne with boldness because of what Christ has done for us and because you have given us the Spirit so that we can understand and interpret and apply these truths to our lives and our present circumstances, and we need your help with that, and that's what we're asking for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in Philippians. We're in chapter 4. Our text today starts in chapter, in verse 2. Philippians 4, verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In many ways, the entire book of Philippians has been driving to this particular passage. I remember Randy's sermon in chapter 2 a while back talks about agreeing the Lord, and he fast-forwarded to this passage. And so there's some disagreement that's occurring in the church. And now, for the first time, we see this disagreement somehow centers on these two women. If I say their name every time, it will take me a long time because I'm, I'm having a hard time pronouncing it. So I'm just going to call them E and S. For shorthand, I hope you're okay with that. So ENS are in some sort of interpersonal disagreement. And it's causing some sort of potential schism in the entire church to the point that Paul does something very unusual. He names them. That doesn't happen very often. Where the, the people who are causing trouble, there's always people who are causing trouble in these churches that are given the occasion for these letters. But it's very infrequent for their names to be listed. And if I'm one of these women, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of these women, that just adds insult to injury. Right? To be named and shamed and placed in the corner and saying, hey, watch out for these two. These are like the real housewives of Philippi or something, right? They're, they're running amok. They're causing trouble. We've got to set them over to the side. I like to think of these two women later on, whenever it, maybe they had a long life and a long ministry, and when the other letters were circulating for the New Testament, to, to look through each one and see who else got named, right? Well, who else got named like we did? And really, hardly anyone did. So they get the letter that was written to the church in Corinth and saying, here's some guy that was sleeping with his father's wife. He doesn't get named. Why do we get named? All these bad teachers, all these false prophets, they don't get named. In this very book alone, there's people that get referred to as dogs, but at least they don't get their names written in this text. I don't know about you, I think I'd rather be called a nameless dog than be named and shamed, right? And then it feels like almost to make it worse, and I'm, I'm building this case a little stronger than what it is, and, and I hope you feel that, but it's almost as if sort of says, they're so out of control they can't handle themselves, so we need a third person, we need a peacemaker, says in verse 3, yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women. So we've got three different people, right? We've got E, we've got S, and we've got this true companion. And no one knows who the true companion is. 
One commentator thinks it's Luke. One commentator thinks it's someone else. Some people think it might be Clement. Some commentators think it's no one in particular person. Some commentators think that it's just sort of Paul saying, somebody, anybody step up and come help these women. Like a nameless placeholder. But it is, it's, it's, it's singular, somebody, one person. And so I think at the outset of the passage, I want to ask you, which of these three characters, the two women who seem to be not agreeing, or this true companion, the helpful person, which of those people do you most relate to? If I was going to hand out a script for a play of, of this passage, which one of those would you say, oh, this is the part that I could play the best? And my guess is the vast majority of us find ourselves as true companion. Oh, I'm the true companion. I'm, I'm, I'm not someone causing trouble. I'm not someone that needs to be placed in the corner. I would be the person who would be coming to help. And, and, and I think that's true. We all may have to play that role at some point in time. But I really want us to try to experience this passage from the perspective of these two women. Of what it would have felt like to be named in the start of the passage, to be placed in the corner, as it were. Because I do think that that's what's happening. Because what we know from the passage and what we know from the context is these aren't shameful women. These are church leaders. Look at what Paul says about them. True companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Together with Clement, another leader, and the rest of my fellow workers. So these are two church leaders acting out of character. These aren't people who need shame. These are people who need care. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. I think that, in fact, commentators have said the reason that he names them is not to add insult to injury. The reason that they're named is to show his love for them and his care for them. That when he's going off on these other people and not naming them, the not naming is it's the shameful. The naming is what's showing his love and his care for these women. And it fits in the context, right? Verse 1 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. No doubt these two women fit into that same category. These are people he loves. These are people he longs for. After that, he's telling them to rejoice. He's not telling them to go to the corner. Okay, the rest of you, the good kids, you guys need to rejoice in the Lord. No, the rejoicing is for these two as well. And I think that's a helpful reminder for us. Even church leaders need care. That's what we see here, right? These two women are very involved. They're side by side ministering with the gospel alongside Paul. And they've come into something into their life where they have an interpersonal skirmish of some kind. And you guys all probably know we've all had these. These can affect your entire life deeply. And what do they need? Paul doesn't take one side over the other. This is not a church discipline issue. He's not saying we need to remove them from the fellowship. He's saying, hey, we need to care for them. And particularly if we don't know who this person is, it might have been that there was someone who is traditionally not a church leader that's being told by Paul to care for the church leaders. It's a beautiful model here, isn't there, of the, uh, the way that the Spirit has called us all to be priests to one another, that some church leaders that have fallen on hard times have an interpersonal skirmish that's no doubt sinful in the sense that there's some selfishness involved, but not sinful to the point that Paul is saying, this is a matter of church discipline. They need to be removed from ministry. They need to be removed from church leadership. He's just saying they need to be under the care of the church. And faithful companion, would you please do this? So I want to read the rest of the passage as care. 
care for these two, care for us, because we all are at some point going to need the care of the church, and we all do need the care of the church, um, because I think that that will help us to read the rest of this passage, which has an incredible number of lists of commands to read them in a different ear than we might have read otherwise. So let's jump into the next bit of the passage, starting in verse 4, with that in mind. Verse 4 from chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now we get to the lists, right? So scholars talk about things between the imperatives, the commands, and the indicatives, the statements, and the things that jump out to me right off in this passage are the imperatives, the commands. We've already done that part. Here's the list of commands. Rejoice in the Lord always, and as if it's not enough, I'm going to tell you again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to all people. Some translations translate that word, your kindness. Don't be anxious. Let your requests be known to God. It's a series of five rapid-fire commands. Boom, 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 boom. I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to read these kinds of passages of Scripture, and the voice I hear in my head is like the impatient high school football coach, right? Like, rejoice in the Lord always. Come on, just rejoice. Don't be anxious. It's easy. Stop being anxious. Right? Is that the voice you hear? In your, I hear this sort of, and that what that do? That that doubles shame on me. Like I do feel anxious sometimes. God, I'm not rejoicing all the time. God, I'm I, I'm not as reasonable as I should be. Sometimes I get angry and, and I become unreasonable. I become selfish and I become unreasonable. And it's and I want us to try to remove that notion. I think that what's happening here is is Paul is encouraging. And he's trying to care for the church. And he's trying to care for this woman. I don't think that he's saying this with an impatient. A bar that's raised so high that this should be easy because we all know this is hard stuff to do. It's not the first time we've run into these sorts of commands in the book of Philippians where uh, Paul's telling us, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Paul himself gives us a hint in this very book that his life is not full of constant circumstantial rejoicing. You guys remember this. If you want to flip back one page, look at chapter 2. We get a hint here, because remember, in this book, one of the things that Paul's doing, and he does in this passage as well, is he's constantly setting himself up and the other leaders up as a paradigm. Live like us. Well, if we're going to live like them, we see in verse chapter 2 and verse 26 and following, there's some examples here of how Paul and the other leaders are not necessarily always not being anxious and always rejoicing. Verse 26, he's talking about Epaphroditus, or we could call him E as well. So we've got E now, S and Y. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So we have, he was distressed. But he's not the only one. You'll see later, Paul 2, 27. Indeed, he was ill, nearer to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. Well, interesting. 
two chapters later, Paul tells us not to be anxious. In chapter 2, he's saying, I was anxious over my friend's near death. I was, if he had died, I would have experienced sorrow upon sorrow. But yet, rejoice in the Lord always. And it feels like a bit of a puzzle here, doesn't it? It feels like, well, how could, what did Paul just forget? Is he now just sort of like trying to be, uh, I'm going to just forget my sorrow and forget my anxiety and sort of like artificially talk about this sort of circumstantial rejoicing. And we all know that the the fact is that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about deep-seated joy. One commentator that I read was very helpful on this. And he said that, that Paul, there's a, the puzzle here can be solved by Paul's ability, and it's the same ability we should have as well, to take a narrow lens on circumstances, his friend's near death. And when you take a narrow lens on circumstances, an appropriate response often is anxiety, suffering, sadness. But then what we see in Paul is the ability now in verse chapter 4 to take a wide lens and you step all the way back. And what does that include? Now, instead of just seeing the, the small circumstances that can cause despair, we can step all the way back and remind ourselves, okay, God is good. God has created a good world and we've fallen and God has redeemed us through Christ Jesus and Jesus is coming back. And so when we step back and we take the wide lens, we can take in all of redemptive history. We can take in all of the already and the not yet. We can say, hey, Jesus has not yet come and finished the good work that he began. I think that's very helpful for me that in the midst of certain circumstances, my tendency and temptation might be to only think about the narrow and not remind myself of the wide lens. And some of us may be tempted at times to only think about the wide lens and not enter into the particular sufferings of this world. Because there's a way that you could follow this command. Uh, Rejoice, Lord, always. You could become a, that's my life verse. I'm a rejoice, Lord, always person. And you could do that and then fail other parts of Scripture. So in Romans 12, it's a very similar passage where Paul's sort of rapid-firing a bunch of these commands. And in Romans 12, Paul says, Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Anybody know what follows? Weep with those who are weeping. If you took Rejoice, Lord, always as your life verse, and you didn't understand there was also this narrow part, then when someone comes to you with weeping, you can say, Nope, not in here. Boom. I'm a rejoicing person. You're not loving someone well. My wife has been given over the, the, the past few years an incredibly important ministry, many times to women that we don't even know, women that are outside of the state. And just this week, she's been on the phone two or three times with a, a woman we've never met before whose husband's infidelity was revealed to her two weeks ago. Wouldn't it be inappropriate for my wife's counsel, my wife's primary counsel to this woman is, I know it's hard, but you need to be rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Or it could almost be equally unsettling if my wife is talking to her and ministering and hang up the phone and she's like, well, I'm tempted to be sad for her, but I just, I'm supposed to rejoice. I'm supposed to rejoice in the Lord always. And I, I'm not trying to minimize what Paul's saying here. What I'm trying to say is the only way you can rejoice is when you have the wide lens of the gospel of what Jesus is doing in and through us throughout all eternity and how he's going to come back and he's going to clean up this suffering and this pain from broken marriages or from sin or from pain or from sickness and disease. But when you're ministering to someone that's in the midst of the pain, that's when it's time to weep with those who are weeping. And I think that's exactly 
what Paul models for us actually in this passage is that we can both look at these women who are in the midst of their struggle and we can care for them well, but we can simultaneously look at them in the midst of their circumstances and tell them to rejoice with a wide lens to the gospel. We can look at Paul and Paul can speak from his own circumstances of being in prison, his plans frustrated. What he wanted to do, he's not been able to do because he's held in prison. But yet he can tell himself to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I think that that's that's a helpful way for us to realize what we can do with this when we think of zooming in and zooming out for the sake of the gospel into people's pain and even into our own. I think if anything, there may be some of us very tempted to not zoom into our own pain because we're supposed to rejoice and therefore things go where we we don't take our hurts, we don't take our pain, we don't take our sin to Jesus like we should. Lord, open our eyes. Look at this list again. If we really did this, wouldn't we change the world as Christians? If we could really get the gospel that in the midst of our circumstances, and in this particular case, in the midst of their persecution and their being hated by their society, that they could rejoice, they could be reasonable, they could never be anxious, they could be making their requests known to God, that's the kind of infectious faith that could change the world. And how well are we doing with that? How well are you doing with that personally? How well am I doing with that personally? So over the last number of years, the, the nature of my work has me in people's homes. I'm in a, a home uh, remodeling sort of industry. And so I spent, I've probably been, over, been in over 2,000 homes over the last four, four or five years or so. And um, while many times you can't tell whether someone's a believer or not, often you can tell by what's hanging in people's homes what kinds of things they hold. And no doubt, and I'm going to tell a story at the end of of an incredible story, no doubt many of the Christians are very kind and they lack anxiety. But I will say that some of the homes I've been in that have been the most anxious, the most irritated, the most angry and bitter have been people who have Scripture hanging over their walls. And one of them in particular, I have a vivid memory, was reading her Bible on her table while really being quite unkind to the workers. It should not be that way. Lord, help it to not be that way with us. Help us to be able to take this in because of the sake of the gospel, because of the truth of the gospel, and do something else with it. Let it to transform us. Let's go to the final, the final bit. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The list continues, right? Paul has this list of these imperatives, these things that you need to do, these commands. And now we have another list. The command ultimately is just two things. Think about these things and practice these things. Well, what kinds of things do we want to think about? Well, it's a long list. True things. This list is not exclusively happy thoughts. Paul's not telling his people exclusively, think about happy thoughts. Because sometimes when we think about true things, they include things that aren't so happy, Right? So think about the things that are true. Mine out truth from falsehood. Whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, 
Is there anything worthy of praise? Think about these things. We see here Paul telling us, and it's no surprise, what we think about matters. What we dwell upon matters. It affects us. What we bring in and we sort of, we, we allow our minds to just think about, meditate on. I was uh, revisiting um, uh, a document that, that Rob Lister actually shared with me a couple of years ago about the importance of meditating on Scripture and, and how to actually gave some tips on how to just chew on and meditate on Scripture. And as I was revisiting that today, I realized how often I will meditate on sports scores. I will. I will meditate. Sometimes I'll meditate. Like I will bring in and just dwell on and think on things that are not in this list. And not only do we want to think on these things, then we want to practice these things. So Paul's doing it at the very end of the passage. He says, hey, once again, I'm the model. Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice is no surprising word in English. It makes sense. You, you practice something so that you can get better at it. At one point in time, we put a basketball hoop on the side of my house. I could take both my sons out there, 13 and 14 years old. I could beat them in free throws every single day. But what's happened over the last six months is now they beat me more frequently than I beat them. One of the reasons is they're practicing more. It's what ha- practice does. Practice makes you better. And the word practice in the New Testament can be really interesting. Particularly in 1 John, you see this. You see it in Paul a little bit. In 1 John, it's very clear. If you read through 1 John, 1 John is making it very clear that you can practice righteousness. You can also make a habit of practicing sin. The same word can be used in either category. So there's a question. What are we practicing? What are you practicing? Are you doing those daily disciplines of of Bible reading and and loving others and and trying to be honest with yourself and with others and prayer and going to the Lord with your issues so that you're practicing righteousness so that when that big event happens, you've been practicing righteousness all this time and that you can finally prove the test? Are you practicing sins? Maybe they're little sins. Maybe they're just little selfishnesses or, or other little things. But if you're practicing sin, whenever that big event comes, then you've practiced yourself to the point of failure. So what we think about matters. What we practice matters. Now, we've still got some time left in the sermon and we're done with the passage, so what are we going to do? But some of you, hopefully, have recognized he didn't talk about every single word in the passage. There's things that are left out. And I've done that on purpose because throughout this passage, it's not an entire passage full of commands. That's how I first read it whenever I was preparing, and that's how, if you memorize these verses in a one, is that's how you memorize them. You memorize the commands. They're easy to memorize. They're easy to preach. Do this, do this, do this. But tucked away in this passage, consistently and throughout it, are these little beautiful statements of truth. And Kenny, as he was preparing the worship set, and um, on Wednesday morning, I believe it was, it might have been Thursday, I, was, I, was, I had a little extra time and I was doing some prep and I got this beautiful text from Kenny and he said, my mind is continually being drawn to these little gems in the text. These little statements of fact. These little statements of truth. And I think that if, if we don't, if we're not careful, we could race right over those like speed bumps and get straight to the next command. So let's go back and look at these a little bit more carefully. At the very beginning, the two women who he's telling to agree in the Lord, he reminds us that their names are in the book of life. Well, how, 
How gracious would that have been? It's one of the things that helps us. This isn't, he's not naming and shaming them. He's not saying, watch out for these women. They're like dogs. They're going to pull you away from the gospel. No, he's saying these are co-workers acting out of character that are believers. Right? He's not taking a, well, let's wait and see. Maybe, maybe these are the ones that, the seeds that fell over in the rocky soil. Or maybe the weeds are about to choke out their faith. No, no, no. He's telling us these are believers Their names are written in the book of the life. And it gives them, when they hear it, an eternal perspective. Hey, work this out. Work this out. This isn't just a problem here and now. Yodia and Syntyche are going to be spending time together in eternity. They might as well work it out now, right? Faithful companion, faithful true companion is going to be spending time with them also in eternity. They might as well help them now. So we, it's this, it's, I think Paul's modeling for us this wide lens. Hey, wide lens. Your circumstances now are difficult. Let's take the wide lens. Your names are written in the book of life. We have here, rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known. The Lord is at hand. It's another reminder. It's a reminder of the coming of Jesus to finish the work that he began on the cross. Oh, Paul, it's hard to rejoice. It's hard to be reasonable. I know that it is, but you know what? The Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming. The one who gives you power to endure now will come back and wipe every tear. So you can can rejoice when you think about the wide lens and what Jesus is doing. He continues on. Don't be anxious, but in everything with prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, this is a beautiful promise, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Man, don't we we need the peace of God? Aren't we starving for the peace of God? Whenever we're anxious, whenever we're not joyful, what do we need? We need the peace of God. And now we're being told, this isn't a command, This this is telling you, hey, God's peace will come to you. It will set up a barricade, a garrison around what? Your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It'll help you with what you think about. It'll help you with what you love. Because those things are not completely within our own power, are they? We need God's peace to come and build this fortress, build this wall, so he can guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And the final fourth gem, tucked away, very similar after this last list and think about these things and practice these things, it says, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. The God of peace will be with you. So I told a negative story earlier of one particular person who was reading their Bible that, was, that uh, had been uh, not joyful. Um, in the last year, I've spent a lot of time with, with one man named Joe. I want to tell you about Joe, and I want to tell you a little bit in length about Joe. Joe lives about three miles from where we sit right now. And the nature of our work at Joe's house, I've been in Joe's house eight or ten times. And a lot of those I could have sent someone else, but I came to love Joe so much that I wanted to go to Joe's house myself every time. And here's why. Joe's between 70 and 80 years old. And without exception, every time I've been in his house, he's been doing ministry. First time I walked into Joe's house, he had three men in the back den and they were having a Bible study. Another time I went into his house, he had a couple, an older couple that he was praying with. Every other time, if no one's there, he's on the phone. 
He's talking to people. And so pretty soon it came out that I'm a believer, he's a believer. And we, we just had this really incredible fellowship. Joe has ministered to me more than he probably realizes. In fact, one of the last times I was there, I told him I was going to mention him in this sermon. Seeing Joe in action, because Joe's very pleasant. If Joe's project doesn't go just right, Joe's just like, oh, okay, whatever, right? He's just, he's so kind. He's not full of anxiety. He's not full of anger. He's not worried that someone's going to take advantage of him. And so I made two assumptions about Joe really early on. The first one is, Joe's just got to be an old retired preacher or an old retired missionary, Right? Those kinds of older fellas, he just, it's just like ministry's just bubbling out of him. It's almost like, you know, his church is removed from him, so he's just got to do whatever he can to, to get his own little flock, just sort of almost in some sort of attempt to control. That was my first assumption. My second assumption, I knew that Joe's wife had passed away. He's got pictures of her in his house. I assumed his wife has been passed away for a number of years. He's obviously doing really, really well. As I've gotten to know him one time, in fact, in fact he said, Jason, um, pray for me. I'd like to get this project done because Saturday night I've got 20 widows coming to my house and some widowers as well. And I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but I just feel like that they need to get together and share some time together. So this, this is the illustration of who Joe is. And at one point I asked Joe, I, the curiosity was just too much. I said, Joe, it, I started asking him questions about his story. Came to find out he's not a retired pastor or a missionary. He was a plumber. Later in his life, he was an inspector. But he loved God's word, and he loves to share God's word. Second assumption that was wrong, his wife has passed away, but only within about the last year to year and a half. A fairly recent loss. And I remember Joe saying, Jason, those first few months were very dark. But you would not know it if you see Joe and the way he does ministry and the thing that captured me when I think about Joe and the reason I'm drawn to be going to, to, to go back to Joe, particularly knowing his story, is here's a man whose circumstances in the narrow lens would give him every reason to be bitter and frustrated and just sort of punt on the rest of the years of his life. But instead he told me, I don't know how many more years the Lord has given me, but I want to use them as best I possibly can. And we see this miraculous work, just like in this passage, right? That Joe embodies for me rejoicing in the Lord always. He embodies reasonableness. He embodies not being anxious. But he also embodies the peace of God, surpassing all understanding, guarding his hearts and his mind in Christ Jesus. He's thinking on the good things, right? He's practicing the right things and godliness, and the peace of God is with him. It's a miraculous story to watch this old fella who doesn't have professional training in ministry pour out his life like a drink offering to these people that God brings to his path to the point that he became that model for me, and now he can become that model for you, even though you've never met him. Oh, Lord, help us to take these circumstances that we're so tempted to become met with us by merely anxiety and fear and the lack of rejoicing and help us to take to the wider lens and remind ourselves the Lord is at hand, the God of peace can be with us, and because of that, we can actually face our present circumstances with joy. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. 
God, I don't know the circumstances any of us are in. I know the circumstances some of the people in the room are in, but I certainly don't know the circumstances everyone is in. And God, I pray when we are tempted to be anxious that you would remind us of the wide lens of the gospel that Jesus is with us and can bring us through. God, I pray that you would make us a people individually and corporately full of thanksgiving, full of rejoicing, and devoid of anxiety because we understand the gospel this well, and that will take a work and a mighty work of the Spirit. So we trust that you will begin that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.